We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match and programming was the fuse as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff here. Welcome to Into the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari. Season 3, Episode 4, Atari's Biggest Mistake, Part 2. Game Player, Non-Expandable. Part 1. The Big Miss In 1977, a follow-up to the Atari VCS was started. But instead of creating a better machine right away, an entire division dedicated to home computers was born. It was believed that the VCS, or Stella, would have a lifespan of less than three years. So Atari System Engineering's power team got together to start designing the next generation Atari VCS right as the 2600 was being released. Originally, it was simply called Project New Machines by designers Joe DeCure and Jay Miner as they started mapping out what they hoped to be the next generation Atari game system in February of 1977. The most important item they wanted to tackle at the beginning was a way to get characters mapped to the screen along with graphics, initially calling it Stella Alphanumeric or Stella NA. The very early initial design used the 6502 processor not the 6507 from the VCS. It also used the TIA or television interface adapter from the VCS, the renamed Stella NA, which would later become Antic, and PIA for keyboard and controller interfaces. It turned out to be more of a computer design than a video game design with the keyboard capability added, but it was still envisioned as a video game system primarily in the early design phases. Music 
After going through a number of design iterations, the now computer project was given the name Colleen. It started with 4K of RAM, a tape drive, the Antic processor for putting characters on the screen, a Super Tia called Stella X, RS-323 and RS-488 ports for expandability, as well as VCS-style game controller ports. They also added a new chip, Pokey, for pots and keys to handle paddle and keyboard input and expandable slots for super cartridges. During the continuing development, it was decided that Colleen would focus on a more serious market and maybe even compete in the same space as the Holy Trinity, namely the Apple II, the TRS-80, and the Commodore PET. To do that, an expansion box was designed with disk drives and communications printers and other serious non-game applications as the target. Now that Colleen was going to be a full-blown computer system, a smaller entertainment and education targeted version was designed called Candy. Candy and Colleen would be hardware compatible and use the same game and ROM cards, but Candy would streamline the design in hopes to position it as a game console and a follow-up to the Atari VCS. Although Atari VCS compatibility was discussed early on, it wasn't built into the candy design. It was decided that compatibility would only be put into the design of both Colleen and Candy if it was cheap and didn't add components to the bill of materials. The team decided to create a serial I.O. bus, much like today's USB, to what would become the Atari 400 and 800 computer systems. While systems like the Apple II had bus slots on the main board for adding a disk drive controller and used relatively inexpensive drives, the Atari serial I.O. bus, while being decades ahead of its time, would put the intelligence of the devices into the devices themselves rather than into the console or computer. This led to tape and disk drives that had their own onboard microprocessors. It allowed the Atari computers and upcoming compatible gaming system to be FCC compliant for the home. But unfortunately, this also made the devices more expensive than those for competing systems. It should be noted that Candy, as originally designed, was not the Atari 400. In fact, the Atari 400, as it was finally released, didn't seem to be mentioned at all from the documents we can find, and certainly was not was originally designed and planned during the brainstorming sessions as Candy. Candy was to be hardware compatible with Colleen, but lack a keyboard or any external interfaces such as a serial I.O. bus. Candy was initially defined in these meetings as game player non-expandable. Colleen was to have four joystick ports, two cartridge slots, 
and expansion bays for extra memory and add-on cards. There was a third edition of the system named Elizabeth with a built-in 13-inch monitor, but the same capabilities as Colleen. There was no mention of the Atari 400 design at all. Basically, a Colleen-compatible, but with a membrane keyboard, only a single cartridge slot, and no monitor output or expansion bays. The reason we are explaining the engineering iterations in granular detail is because the designers knew they needed a VCS replacement, not just a computer. A VCS replacement was always on the design schedule. At the time of the discussion on Candy Game Player, it was originally decided that the VCS would continue production until late 1979, when presumably Candy or Game Player non-expandable would take its place. As late as January 1978, while the team of J Minor, Joe DeCure, George McLeod, Doug Neubauer, and Alan Miller were putting the final design together for the full-blown Colleen, it started to look like the Atari 800, or Colleen, would be released in 1979 for costing and retail pricing, but the specs were pretty much set for Colleen and Candy. These were the final specifications for Colleen and Candy that came out of the initial design phase. Colleen would include the Antic processor, Pokey, CTIA or Color Television Interface Adapter, and the 6502 chipsets. Also, 4K of RAM, two cartridge ports, three panel switches, which would be later renamed Option, Start, and Select, a built-in keyboard, four joystick ports, an audio cassette interface, a serial interface, and the bus expansion port. Candy, or Game Player Non-Expandable, was much closer to the supercharged VCS than the Atari 400. It would include the full Antic, Pokey, CTA, and 6502 chipsets, as well as 4K of RAM, one cartridge port, the three panel switches, four joystick ports, a plug-in keyboard into ports three and four, an audio cassette interface, but no serial interface or bus expansion. There was no mention of the Atari 400 style spec at all. It is our contention that if released in 1979, this game player non-expandable specification would have been much more powerful than any system produced over the next several years. With no keyboard and no expensive serial bus, the price could have been kept low enough so no competition would have been able to survive. So what happened? From the design notes we can find on atarimuseum.com and from the incredible book, Atari Inc. Business is Fun, it looks like the Atari VCS might have been too successful for its own good. With the Colleen and Candy specifications seemingly complete, in late 1978, design iterations started up again on what Candy would actually be. There didn't seem to be a consensus between the designers and management on the final product specifications. Was it a game player, or a computer, or both? Would it take away from Atari VCS cartridge sales? Why replace the VCS now when it's doing so well? The final nail. 
In January of 1979, Candy, as originally designed, was dead. The now-named Atari 400 Candy would not be a game player-only machine, but a low-end computer system that could be utilized by children and adults for education and game playing. A membrane-style keyboard, think old McDonald's-style cash registers, was added to the final design, as was the expansion SIO serial port. The original Candy, or Game Player Non-Expandable, was no longer going to be the next-generation game machine. This was most likely because, by 1979, the Atari VCS was the number one game system in the land, and Warner did not want to upset its cash cow. In the book Business is Fun by Marty Goldberg and Kurt Vandell, they came up with the same conclusion we have been leaning to. Quote, Candy was no longer in contention to replace the Atari VCS and keep Atari's consumer gaming products well ahead of the competition. With that, the first step toward the demise of Atari's domination in the console market had been taken. We caught up with Kurt Vandell recently, and we decided to ask him some questions specifically about Candy and the chapter in his book. Kurt had a lot to say. Now, imagine here we are, it's, it's 1979, Atari announces that they're coming out with a new computer division, here's the new computer, and here is their new, whatever you want to call it, the new advanced video game system or the new advanced game player. Marketing doesn't have to say anything other than Atari will now be releasing all of its hottest, newest titles on our new advanced game. You know, here, here's the new game player, here's the new advanced, you know, VCS or whatever you want to call it. Comes out in 79. So now one of the packages you can buy with it is the keyboard, Star Raiders, and a joystick package. They, they put that all together and they sell it to, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the new advanced player. But now you're going to start to see, okay, now you start to see Asteroids. You start to see Missile Command. Maybe they do, you know, they, they, you know now you're going to start to see as 80 comes along. All right, now we can do Battlezone. Now we can, we can do, we start doing some other more advanced. But you see, here, here's what you start to do now is, now, Asteroids <clears throat> doesn't come out on the VCS. It comes out on the NED system first. Six months later, you get a VCS version. You get, you know, you, maybe Battlezone. Maybe, you know, you get, you know, now Space Invaders comes out on the advanced system. Now you get, you know, maybe they call it Advanced Space Invaders. You know, they start to give them new, new titles. But now you start to see now all of the new titles only come out on this system first. They come out on the VCS six months later. This way, what happens is now what you do is you don't say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna phase this out or we're gonna discontinue it. We are not gonna worry about adapters to plug in to make it play those 2600 games. No, the games are still gonna come out, but when you want these new games, they come here first. Now what happens is the market on its own, the buyers on its own are automatically gonna see wait, I want asteroids, so I'm going to buy this system. You know, maybe I'll give the VCS to my little brother. And eventually what happens is you have a soft transition where more, less and less people are going to buy games on the 2600. They're going to be buying them on the new system. The transition is going to happen on its own. And now eventually, within a year or two, 
pretty much the VCS is done. They can now announce they're going to discontinue it. And maybe they'll still keep developing a couple of games for it as they go along, but they're not going to sell those anymore. So now they can focus on the new advanced system. But this was not to be. Even though the Atari team, led by Nolan Bushnell throughout the 70s, were pushing for a new console, the new brass at Warner Communications, who had purchased Atari in 1976, were not convinced. In an interview with us in 2008, Nolan Bushnell described it like this. I wanted to do the computer systems, but I wanted that to be the core of the next Atari game system. And that was sort of the the crux of, there, there were two things that, actually three things that Warner and I constantly fought about. One was, I felt that the computer system should not be a closed system, that we needed to have third-party software developers. I could see Steve Jobs out evangelizing, and Atari was saying, if you write software for the Atari computers, we'll see. I just thought that was foolhard. And they, you know, they were from the record world, where you sued people, you know, to, to, you wanted to control it all. The second thing that was happening is I felt that the day we shipped the Atari 2600, that we really needed to start spending engineering money on getting the, the, the next one. Because we, by the time it was there, we, we um, you know, the technology advanced so much that I knew that we could build a heck of a lot better video game. Warner was horrified with that idea. That, you know, because they, they wanted to be in the 45 RPM record business and just sell records forever. And I told them that it doesn't work that way. You know, every two to three years, you need to get, you need to upgrade your hardware. And their decision to not upgrade the hardware was really what led to the collapse of the business in 1982. Instead of listening to Bushnell, he was pushed out of the company in 1979. And soon, all of the amazing engineers that helped drive Atari's innovations throughout the 70s, Al Alcorn, Joe DeCure, Jay Miner, and others would follow. Pioneering game designer Chris Crawford was hired just as Bushnell was leaving. Here's what he had to say about this specific time at Atari. The VCS uh, initially did very badly. And after a period of time, Nolan felt that it was time to give up on the VCS and build something new. Uh, and he was especially uh, enamored of... Uh, the home computer, such better technology. And so his attitude was, dump this VCS loser and let's just put all our money on the home computer. And the Warner people disagreed and said, no, you have to, it was Manny Gerard at Warner who was the main guy, who said, no, we just need to develop the market some more. We need more games. We need to build up a bigger software library. We need to have to give this product time and so the Warner people refused to give priority. 
Atari management was a victim of its own success. The VCS was so popular, and they had so little experience with anything but music 45s, that they thought they didn't need a new system in 1979. So the home computer division was spun off into its own buildings, and the consumer division kept plodding along with the VCS. And that was their ultimate downfall. While VCS became immensely profitable from 1980 through 1982, its limitations were laid bare to the public that had become more and more sophisticated about video games. Crawford again described it like this. And in fact, what brought Atari down was the E.T. cartridge in Christmas of 82. So even 82 was a magnificent year for Atari. And most of Atari's profits came from the VCS, not the home computer, not the coin-op machine. What could have been? It is well known at this point in time that programming a game for the Atari VCS was not for the faint of heart. In the book Arcade Perfect by David L. Craddock, Todd Fry described his efforts to translate Pac-Man to the VCS in this way. The amount of computer power in a Namco coin-up board for Pac-Man was orders of magnitude more computing power than the Atari VCS. He continues, all of that stuff, such as the finer details on the maze, the round dots, the nicer looking fruit, all a question of computing power. Fry punctuates it this way. You have no idea how crazy that is. It was insanely hard to try and make round dots. The dashes was a practical accommodation to the hardware limitations of the 2600. Chris Crawford, an early Atari employee who worked on an unreleased VCS game called Wizard before moving on to working with the 8-bit computers, described VCS programming like this. Well, you know, it's a very difficult machine to program. You had 128 bytes of RAM and 2K of ROM space, and the video display was driven by the CPU, uh, 6502. And so basically, most of your code consisted of the drawing code. You drew it one scan line at a time. So basically, you, you frantically load up the, the registers, the display registers, with the display data. And then you, for one scan line, and then you had to load up the registers uh, with the display data for the next line and you had exactly, uh, I think it was 76 machine cycles in which to do this, <laughs> or on average about 35 uh, assembly language commands. So, uh, I mean, that's a pretty tight restriction. <laughs> When Atari produced their Pac-Man and E.T. cartridges for the VCS in 1982, the engineers, even though very capable, 
were working with both hands tied behind their back from a technical perspective. It was with these limitations that Todd Fry attempted to build a game for Stella when, if Bushnell had had his way and not been pushed out of the company, he probably would have been building it for Candy instead. But it really didn't have to be that way. If Candy had been released as a game console along with Colleen as a computer, Atari would have had a solid next generation one-two punch with both a high-powered consumer game machine and a high-powered computer. And if that was the case, Pac-Man's flagship platform in 1982 would have been Candy, not the VCS, which had far more resources for designing a home version of Pac-Man. Here is Chris Crawford again explaining how much more power Candy had in hardware than the VCS. You know, it's funny, at that time, everybody wanted to work on the 400 and 800 because it was so much sexier. And the 6502 and the 800 was faster. I think they clocked it at 1.8 megahertz, whereas Stella's ran at one. But it had much better video. And so basically you could set up an entire, basically there was a graphics processor called Antic. And Antic handled all of the graphics uh, work. And so, whereas with Stella, all you had to, you, you had to, the CPU spent most of its time drawing the screen. With Colleen, oh, code name. Stella was the VCS and Colleen was the uh, 800. With Colleen, you simply set up a page display and let that, and let that run. And there was another processor called Antic. And Antic did all the work that the 6502 did in Stella. Uh, you didn't have anywhere near as many CPU cycles to play with. And the other thing, of course, is that Colleen had a lot of memory. I mean, the, the smallest was 8K as opposed to 128 bytes. And it, it could, you know, and it had a big ROM with all sorts of operating system stuff in it, and it had, you know, interfaces for non-volatile uh, uh, memory and so forth. You might be asking yourself, now, so what if? Well, imagine now, if you can, a world where candy was the dominant console of the land in 1982 and not the Atari VCS. Sure, this is an exercise right out of the vertical blank, but that's what we're here for. We think it to be a very interesting one because there actually were advanced versions of Pac-Man and even E.T. produced by Atari. Even though those versions are not as well known as the VCS versions, we still can examine how they turned out and how they're received, and see maybe what an alternate version of the past could have been. And this is not just speculation, because Atari did produce a version of Pac-Man for the hardware that was to be candy in 1982, the Atari 400-800. And the Atari 400-800 computer line released in 1979 had been around for several years when the VCS version of Pac-Man was released. 
While the 400 and 800 were originally designed as a set of next-generation compatible computer and video game consoles to replace the VCS, when it was floundering in the late 70s, by 1983 they had grown into a very respectable line of home computers that could play some amazing games. And as it turns out, the Atari 400, along with its more powerful brother, the Atari 800, were very capable machines that could replicate the arcade experience of Pac-Man in an authentic way. When the 400-800 version of Pac-Man was released in 1982, Atari was roundly praised in the niche computer press for their version. From Antic Magazine, December 1982, on Atari 8-bit computer, Pac-Man. Atari Pac-Man is an excellent reproduction of the stand-up version. The maze is the same, except that it is flattened to fit on a standard TV. Images of fruits occasionally appear for the Pac-Man to eat. The kind of fruit indicates how many mazes have been completed. These are the same, except the pineapple is replaced with the familiar Atari logo. Sounds are very similar, including the introductory tune and the siren-type background sound. Even small details, like the movement of the goblin's capes, are duplicated in this cartridge. The review continues. My only complaints about Atari Pac-Man are the lack of commercials between mazes. This was probably due to memory limitations, and the coloring of the goblin's eyes is missing. Still. I would recommend Atari Pac-Man over Ghost Hunter or Jawbreaker to someone who's looking for the best copy of the original. Electronic Games Magazine also had high praise for the Atari 400-800 Pac-Man in their January 1983 issue groans and anguish, at least from some quarters, greeted the debut of the Atari VCS version of Pac-Man. It seemed to be just a shadowy, flickering echo of the blockbuster that made the whole country goofy about gobble games. The computer version of the world's most popular maze chase is bound to get a warmer reception from the rank-and-file gamers than the video game cartridge that preceded it to market. The review continues. Not only is the play action good, highlighted by reasonable responsiveness from the joystick, but the on-screen layout is much more similar to the pay-to-play machine. The elements that made the coin-op classic are present in the 400-800 ROM cartridge, including multiple levels of difficulty, a variety of bonus prizes that rise in value as the game continues, and differentiation among the four goblins who chase Pac-Man through the maze. However, this was not the only candy version of Pac-Man. When Atari released the Atari 5200 console in 1982, one of its launch titles was a new version of the aforementioned Pac-Man, created specifically for that platform. The 5200, which was also known as PAM, Personal Arcade Machine, and Video System X, had been in development for a couple years to combat the threat posed by Mattel and Television by the time it was released. Like Candy, 
the 5200 was also based on the Atari 400 hardware. It was released almost six months too late to be the flagship platform to launch Pac-Man. From Electronic Games, October 1982. Atari is ready to bring out its much-discussed Super Game, now called the 5200. There will be a host of new games made specifically for the console, including a sensational version of Pac-Man. The 5200 console, as it turned out, was too little, too late, and came with some devastatingly awful features that made people stay away. The main problem with the system were the next-generation non-centering analog joystick controllers. They were confusing to gamers and made Atari standard games like Asteroids and Pac-Man nearly impossible to play. From the Atari 5200 FAQ. The 5200 was created at a time when poor marketing and questionable company policy ran rampant within Atari. The 5200 controller was developed by an individual who had never even played a single video game in his life. Response to the controllers from focus groups and clinics were poor, but the marketing arm stubbornly insisted on releasing the system with the groundbreaking, in quotes, elements intact. Furthermore, AtariProtos.com has this to say about the 5200 version of Pac-Man. Yes, once again, the 5200 joysticks ruin what is an otherwise great game. The non-centering sticks make the precise movements required in the game nearly impossible. Overshooting tunnel entrances and ramming into ghost monsters becomes an all-too-common occurrence. But it has to be said that even with these controller issues, the Atari 5200 sported a version of candy hardware and could still create games that were very faithful to their coin-op inspirations. And in spite of its limitations, the vintage reviews for the 5200 version of Pac-Man were very good. From Electronic Games, May 1984. This is a remarkably faithful translation of the Midway Namco arcade game even more faithful than the Atari computer version. This one's got everything down to the intermissions. Pac-Man is another solid gold brick in the ever-growing wall of 5200 software. From Antic Magazine, July 1983, on the 5200 Pac-Man by Robert Caporell, MD. Visually, it's colorful, without the flashes we saw on the VCS version. And the figures are distinct, with each ghost having a personality all its own. The 5200 is horizontally laid out in contrast to the vertical screen in the arcade game. This in no way detracts from the play. In fact, I found the patterns that worked in the arcade game won't work on my 5200 version, so the learning process and fun of playing are actually increased. Now, just imagine if those were the reviews that greeted the first release of Pac-Man after Pac-Man Day, instead of the devastating ones from early 1982 for the Atari VCS. The whole video game industry could be an entirely different place right now.
But it's not just the release of the home version of Pac-Man that could have had a happier ending. Remember E.T., the video game for the VCS? The one released in late 1982? The one that supposedly brought down the entire game industry and might have been buried by the truckload in a New Mexico desert? Well, that was not the only version of an E.T. video game that was produced by Atari in 1982. Can you see where this is going? Uh-huh, you guessed it. There was also a version of E.T. made for the candy hardware, and by all accounts, it was actually a pretty good game. Work on the E.T. computer game, officially called E.T. Phone Home, started in October 1982, a couple of months before the Atari VCS cartridge was released. It was designed as a demonstration product for the Atari 1200XL computer system, a sleek, new, modern, cheaper-to-manufacture version of the Colleen hardware, when it was revealed at CES in January 1983. While the ET computer game was a similar quest to the Atari VCS game, find the pieces of ET's phone while avoiding authorities, it played out on an impressive multicolored scrolling world of houses, trees, and water. The game was a full 16K cartridge and included an extra 1K of memory dedicated to a digitized ET voice saying, ET phone home. While this audio sample might not sound like much in 2020, 38 years ago, it blew people away. Here it is. Not outside of dedicated hardware coin-ops like Berserk and Sinistar had anyone really heard a sampled voice in a video game before. It was groundbreaking, but sadly, few people ever experienced it. In this story about the game in Antic Magazine, Robert DeWitt described the game in this way in their July 1983 issue. E.T. Phone Home is intended for a young market, but like the film, it may be appreciated by older players as well. The game is simple enough at the lowest level for children, about Elliot's age, to play and win, but at level 9, it will still challenge experienced stick twisters. The concept of the game derives directly from the E.T. story. E.T., while hiding in the house, guides Elliot around the neighborhood to find pieces for the telephone needed to call E.T.'s alien friends to return from space. If the pieces can be gathered within the time limit and E.T. can scurry to the landing site without detection, the spaceship lands and carries him away. DeWitt continued his story in Antic Magazine with these very enthusiastic thoughts about the E.T. phone home game. The game is elegant and sophisticated in its appearance and play. The playfield scrolls to reveal a suburban neighborhood of streets and houses edged by forests, fields, and streams. These elements were constructed from characters carefully redefined, so each might contribute to several different final forms. Now, think back to the very beginning of the story. The very first thing the designers of Colleen and Candy wanted was a display capable of producing characters, unlike the line-by-line -line television scan used to create VCS graphics. This very first feature they designed as the Antic processor was the basis of sophisticated games the VCS could not compete with.
modern Atari fans seem to agree. Here are a selection of reviews for the ET computer game from AtariMania.com by user Epi2000611214. If there was one game that didn't deserve a guilty by association stigma, it would be this. All that negative publicity for the 2600 game and the ensuing video game crash of 1983 caused this game to be practically a forgotten footnote. It's a respectable game that nicely captures the suburbia setting of the film and the mission to get E.T. home. The voice synthesis, albeit brief, was a nice touch and a rarity for 1983 as was the scene of E.T. reuniting with his mothership. This premise of the game is something that 2601 could or should have been. Bumping into government agents and scientists sure beats falling into endless pits. Here's another one by Daniel Thomas McGinnis, October 16th, 2012. A criminally underrated classic that is vastly superior to the Howard Scott Warshaw infamous 2600 cart. Graphics are highly detailed and atmospheric for its time, and that scratchy, digitized E.T. voice still gives me nightmares. Ack. I think that last part might have been a backhanded compliment. But let's move on to the third one. Johnny EOL 11-11-2006. Better than the 2600 version, not hard. A nice little quest to gather phone pieces, then get E.T. back to his pickup point. Okay for a film spin-off if it happens. I'm not 100% sure what the last part meant, but still, three good reviews. I first played E.T. Phone Home at HW Computers in 1983 on a trip to see the 1200XL with my dad and dream about one day owning a computer. The game was on display in the store and I was able to grab the joystick and try it out for a few minutes. It played like a cute adventure game with a detailed map of neighborhood and nice animated sprites. As computer games go, I recall being very impressed with the ET computer game. It was obviously not directed towards myself, a teenage computer nerd, and more towards the younger set, but the visuals and smooth gameplay very much impressed me. Since I played this version well before I ever played the Atari VCS version, I've always felt that the 8-bit candy version of E.T. was the real version, while the one for the VCS was just a cheap imitation. Now imagine if that was the impression of everyone who played E.T. on the VCS. Instead of being seen as the only version or the flagship version, it would have been the little brother version released for limited hardware. If you wanted to play the real game, you would do that on the more powerful candy machine because it was the main console of the day. In a very possible alternate reality, we might be talking about the candy versions of Pac-Man and E.T. And they would be hailed as successful titles that furthered the game industry in 1982. Instead, because Atari opted to milk the VCS for every last penny, they were far too late to the game, 
and the good versions of E.T. and Pac-Man, the ones that should have been hailed as true successes for the company, have been relegated to the dustbin of history, mostly forgotten because Atari didn't know a good thing when they had it. And here is Kurt Vandell once again. So now we're seeing 80, 81, 82. 82 comes along. They secure Pac-Man. Pac-Man is released on the new advanced system. So you've got a Pac-Man that, okay, it's a landscape version of Pac-Man, although they could have done a portrait one. You look at the one like like Perry Dwent put out with his cartridge, that friggin' game is amazing. But even if they did the, 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 the portrait version, uh, the landscape version, you now have intermissions, you have all this stuff. You're, you've, you've got a buying public, their jaw is going to hit the floor. Now, all of a sudden, advanced game consoles are going to be flying off the shelf because Pac-Man is the game that puts Atari on the map. Every magazine article cover is going to be talking about how great Pac-Man, how Pac-Man came home. It looks and plays just like the arcade and this, you know, blah, 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 blah. And now you see the change. There is not the there is not the Pac-Man fault, and maybe ET is done. ET is now done on the home computer, so now we see a we see a better ET. Um, hopefully, maybe Howard Howard moves over to the to the the the, the advanced system uh, you know programming team, and maybe they've got more time. Maybe Atari's doing so well they don't have to get into that you know that that trap uh, deal that that Steve Ross did. Unfortunately. You know, E.T., you, you can't blame Howard. You can't even blame Atari. This was Steve Ross. You know, he, he, he was kissing Spielberg's ass. And Spielberg, you know, I have a very strong feeling Spielberg just played Ross. How much did Atari lose so Ross could, could run, you know, could, 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 you know, could market his other assets? Ah yes, Steve Ross, the man who ran all of Warner Communications when they owned Atari. The man who paid Steven Spielberg $20 million to license E.T. for Atari. He was the man who it seems that the biggest mistakes for Atari ran all the way to the top. So what happened then to the Colleen and Candy hardware, the should-have-been 1979 video game platform that became a set of admittedly great and much-loved computers in the Atari 8-bit line? Well, as it turns out, Atari clucked that one up too. Here's Chris Crawford again. The attitude initially among all the executives was, we, you know, we want to make all the money on the software. We don't want competitors because they were having competitors with the VCS and the programmers were trying to explain no that's not the way it works you need a big library of software you need to encourage them and I was one of the people doing that and uh, so initially the thing is they had never quite defined exactly what it was that had to be kept secret and 
I was the programmer at Atari who had you know, sort of come in from the outside world and had more contacts with outsiders. And so I'd be working on Atari software and the phone would ring and it was somebody in Indiana uh, saying, you know, can I get any of the technical documents? And I would go over to the, uh, you know, the main area and get a few of the technical documents, photocopy them and mail them off. Um, I was sending out, because there, there was some sort of, there were enough loopholes that I was able to send out some documents uh, and not get fired. Yeah, they wanted it all kept secret. Uh, I was sending out some minor stuff, and then one day, it was sort of like the, uh, the dam broke, and they had an official new policy, 180-degree reversal, we want to... Uh, tell everybody about this and so I immediately got on the phone and started calling up a bunch of my contacts saying hey would you like complete technical documents on the Atari and we shipped a lot of those and Atari computers did make a splash by 1983 Four years after being introduced, reviews of games for Atari computers flooded magazines like Electronic Games at the time with amazing titles like Star Raiders, Caverns of Mars, Blue Max, Fort Apocalypse, Mule, and Archon, as well as Chris Crawford's very own effort, Eastern Front, just to name a few. They dominated the review section of gaming and computer magazines, but it was short-lived. Chris Crawford explains. But my impression was that they, they were always spending more money than they were taking in. I mean, as the home computer did grow, it did enjoy good sales. Uh, you know, it, it was doing well, but uh, they kept, you know, adding to the home computer division, you know, investing in it the same way they've done with CCS. Uh, but then the Commodore 64 uh, pulled the rug out from underneath the home computer, and uh, basically there was a price war. At that time, when the Commodore 64 came out, there were a number of color computers. There was the Apple, uh, the Atari, there, Texas Instruments had a machine, uh, Radio Shack had a machine, uh, and there were a couple of other real minor ones. The Commodore 64 came out, and it was priced below everybody else, and so that forced some people, Atari, drop it and uh, basically uh, Jack Trammell was moving all of his production overseas and he was able to lower his prices and there was this steady price war where over the period of like 15 months I think the prices just kept going down, down, down and what really killed Atari was they decided to move all the production to Hong Kong. Uh, and the Christmas production was supposed to, uh, I mean, Christmas is the big selling time for these. And so the Hong Kong unit was supposed to come up on in August, I think. And uh, they shut down production in the States. Uh, expecting the Hong Kong production to come on stream 
and the Hong Kong line had problems, and they didn't come on stream until like November. And so when Christmas came, there were no Atari computers on the shelves. Yeah, it was an absolute disaster, a catastrophe for Atari. And that's what sealed Atari's fate. Now, there were a bunch of other things that greatly contributed to it. But I feel that that was the, the knockout blow. Before Atari knew what had hit them, they were too late in 1983 to beat the Commodore 64 in the computer market, a story we will cover in a future episode. And the 5200 was old technology in 1982, when they should have had the third generation of game player non-expandable available to blow away the competition. So was Atari's biggest mistake Atari VCS Pac-Man? No. Was Atari's biggest mistake not making Candy the follow-up to the VCS in 1979? Probably. But that might be just indicative of an even bigger problem of Atari, no longer a startup and under control of Warner Communications in the early 1980s. The fact is, by 1979, after Nolan Bushnell was pushed out of Atari, the company simply failed to innovate. In fact, with most of the original Atari engineers and dreamers long gone, they might not have even known the true nature of innovation any longer. In our 2008 interview with Nolan Bushnell, he described the situation this way. One of the, uh, one of the guys at, at Warner, I can remember this to this day, said, you know, I had made a proposal to do a really interesting set of games. And I can remember him not even blinking, looking at me and said, Nolan, why don't you innovate kind of like you did last year? None of this new stuff. You know, he didn't understand that what he said. He didn't, you know, he was so out of tune with, with what the nature of innovation is. And I've, 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 I've been thinking that I was going to get that put in legal point sometime. Part of that bears repeating. Nolan, why don't you innovate kind of like you did last year? None of this new stuff. That explains a lot. Yes, in the end, Atari's biggest problem, the failure to innovate. Besides the Maria chip that powered the much-delayed Atari 7800, all of the significant console innovations Atari ever produced were created when Nolan Bushnell and his hand-picked team of creative engineers were at the helm. Without them, Atari was nothing but a flashy marketing company with very little behind the curtain. And this is why Candy, the game player not expandable, the console that never was, and its possible follow-ups that never materialized, but would have most likely blown away any and all competition, live forever in the vertical blank.
Thanks for listening to Into the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari, Season 3, Episode 4, Atari's Biggest Mistake, Part 2, Game Player, Non-Expandable. Part 1 and Part 2 of Atari's Biggest Mistake were an experiment to see if people like this type of content. Please send us feedback so we know if we're on the right track. Also, don't forget to tell your friends and leave us a review. We could really use it. You can contact us at our Facebook group, Into the Vertical Blank. You can also contact us on Twitter at Atari underscore VB underscore pod, or just type in Into the Vertical Blank in the search, and you'll find us. Until next time, Into the Vertical Blank. Data, V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.